Good afternoon and welcome to Startup Nation, our weekly podcast that celebrates innovation and entrepreneurship. Startup Nation is brought to you by Dublin Business Innovation Centre, where ambitious founders get support to start and scale new businesses. I'm Connor Carmody. I hope you'll stay with me as we explore emerging trends in the world of technology and business. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the new virtual world and what does that mean? I was reading an article recently by David Palmer. He's the author of a new book called Reality Plus, and it makes a very interesting case that virtual reality is a genuine reality, invested with just as much meaning as anything that happens in the physical world. And as more and more of our lives play out in the virtual space or the metaverse, maybe this is becoming more than just an abstract debate. What does that mean for virtual versus real world? It's also maybe a generational thing where Some of us oldies are more inclined to count the digital world as maybe not fully real. But for a younger generation, from their perspective, the virtual world is part of reality and is treated that way. Mark Zuckerberg has said that the future of Facebook is a metaverse, a virtual environment where you can be physically present to hang out, play games, work and create. And to make this happen, virtual and augmented realities are the key technologies to enabling an immersive future and immersive metaverse. Our guests today have started the development of a platform that allows customers to use headsets to be trained and upskilled. And so I'm delighted to be joined by Pat O'Connor and Niall Campion of Vray. Thanks for joining us this morning and maybe kick us off. Tell us uh, a little bit about you and your background. Maybe start with you, Niall. Hi, Connor. Thanks for having us. Um, Broadly, I guess my background before the company really is from in film. So I worked in film and TV for probably 12 years before starting to look at VR. Um, And so like my kind of last claim to fame uh, was I did the background for the 9 o'clock news. So the RT 9 o'clock news. um, Oh, wow. The the new studio background. Well, well, yeah, so it was a new studio in 2009. Um, yeah. it's, not the, it's not new anymore. Um, so I did two versions of it. And the, the version on air at the moment, actually, I didn't do. So that was that was one of the, uh, like that change, I think, around 2018. That's right. Um, but I, I did it up until then. And I think the last thing I now still have on air is the nationwide opening sequence. Um, <laughs> so I did that, I think, around 2013. And that's still on the air. So Fantastic. Um, that's kind of what I did. And then worked sort of, I guess, it was broadly graphics. I was working on graphics, um, editing, kind of post-production generally. Um, and that kind of lent itself, I guess, in in a short in, in the short version of the story, lent itself to sort of a lot of the skills that that are needed to make sort of immersive worlds and virtual content. Fantastic, Pat. What about you? How did you find your way here? Spent twenty two years in the Irish Defence Forces, so kind of my career was in two parts there. So kind of ten years working in reconnaissance, including as a reconnaissance unit commander, and then the other ten years working at kind of strategic level, uh, mostly in comms. So I was a spokesperson for three of the four last four chiefs of defence. And then working in strategy, so strategy development. And I suppose it was in that, through that work, I started to get exposed to new technologies as the Defence Forces was looking for ways to innovate, to develop capabilities in new ways. Um, and we got exposed to, to VR and actually got exposed to it from a kind of a recruitment point of view. And I remember putting on the headset for the first time thinking, my God, this is a lot more than recruitment. This is how we can train people. Yeah. Um, and like my my last operations deployment was to Syria during the civil war there in 2012 and 2013. And I kind of came back from that going, we need to prepare people better. Um, like, I mean, don't get me wrong, the defense forces do a great job preparing people. But at the same time, it's hard to replicate what you're going to face in a full-on conflict in Syria in the Wicklow Mountains. Yeah. But I guess what VR allows you to do is bring people to a virtual world where they can train as close as possible to the real thing. 
Fantastic. Can I ask you to set the context for us? So as I was reading about this preparing over the last day or two, there's VR and there's AR and I saw XR. I think that's, uh, I don't know what that is, but it's, I don't know what it is, but you can explain it to me. But maybe to kick us off, set a bit of context on what are all of those acronyms and what do they mean? Start off with ORR, which is a real reality. <laughs> Just my favorite one at the moment. Um, so like, they're kind of like, for me, they're kind of a spectrum of technologies. And, and like, I kind of like, I prefer to refer to them as kind of immersive technologies in general. So like at one end, I guess, like there's VR, which is where you put on a headset and you're fully immersed in a sort of virtual world. So like either fully digitally created. So with sort of CG assets, like I would have used to make sort of that background for the RT news that we talked about. Or else it can be made up of video footage. Or, but the point is that you're putting on a headset and it lets you transport to somewhere else. So in Pat's example there, where you're talking about like training the Wicklow Mountains to be in Syria, well, what you can do now is put on a headset in the Curra and actually train in Syria. And so it's it's putting you in somewhere, some other place um, and fully immersed in that world. I guess AOR is probably maybe in terms of a spectrum, maybe the other end or another part of the same spectrum, which is it, it lets you add digital layers to the world you're currently in. So, like, if you think about maybe to go back to the defense example, that, you know, a soldier in the field can put on an AOR headset and have, like, additional information layered on top of the world they're looking at. So, for example, they could be looking at a, a compass that tells them, you know, you need to go straight ahead or, like, take a look at this building. And I saw a really nice example of it last night, actually, the new Snap Spectacles have, like, this really nice AOR layer over London. So when you're wearing these glasses, walk around London, it'll tell you, like, there's a shard and here's some interesting information about the shard. So it's about overlaying information on the real world. XOR is kind of a, it tends to be a catch-all term for covering both of those, which is like extended or XOR is uh, extended reality. Yeah. Um, and then Microsoft are kind of made up term called MOR, which is mixed reality. And so like they're all kind of somewhere in the middle, which is kind of using like a fully immersive VR headset with objects from the real world included in the scene. So, you know, if I'm sitting... Uh, maybe training to be a pilot sitting in the cockpit, but I'm sitting in an actual cockpit of an aircraft or sitting in a mock-up of the cockpit. Um, and so the controls are all in the same place. So like parts of the real world are incorporated into the virtual scene. Whereas, you know, in other examples of full VR that you don't need anything in the real physical world, you put on the headset, no matter where you are and, and can experience everything. I hear a lot, and I, I mentioned it in my intro around the metaverse and, you know, as far back as I guess, 2014 uh, Facebook bought Oculus um, way back when none of us, you were, none of the rest of us were thinking about this new world. What is the metaverse? It's not a new term. It's been used in a book from many years ago and it's been used in a movie. It's not a new term. What exactly is it? My, my short answer is kind of hype is what it is. But like, again, in an extreme example of it, I guess it's like, you know, thinking back to 1999 and the Matrix, like, you know, that's kind of where like Facebook, which I see the metaverse going, I think, is that everyone's kind of in a headset, in a virtual world, kind of, you know, all interacting with each other in a, like sort of a, a world that's not the physical world that we live in, if that, if that makes sense. And um, is, is it is it all hype or is there is there some reality in it? I mean, do we see ourselves, do we see the, the real and the, the virtual merging? Do we see them coexisting? You know, I remember Second Life and things like this do do is is it or is or is it still hyped at this stage yeah i i, I don't know like it's it, when you talk about sort of the real and the virtual merging like i feel like we're kind of doing that already and like especially with stuff like mobile phones you know where like the real world or like smartphones like your real world and your virtual world you know your i don't know the digital world that you would have 
worked in before, like you talk about Second Life, like that follows you around everywhere now. Um, like I guess for me, like all these technologies, they're all just evolutions of sort of the same type of thing. So like, I, I, like when I think about a VR headset at a basic level, it's just a different type of monitor. So like instead of your monitor being a 2D screen in front of you, now it's like a 3D screen you can put on your face. So like, is one technology going to change fundamentally how we interact with each other, interact with the world? Like I, I don't think so, but like it's definitely, you know, there's that, we're definitely moving towards a, a more digital existence, I guess. So it's 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 a complement to our life as opposed to it's a new life is kind of what I'm picking up there. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and like remember, like over lockdown, like it was, I, I found you know maybe a glimpse into the future or whatever where you could put on a VR headset. I remember myself and Pat like playing games over. Like, you know, you can put on a VR headset, you can be both be in different parts of the world and you can be sort of interacting together as if you were beside each other. Yeah. Like, that's actually quite powerful. Like, it's, it's kind of hard to appreciate it until you actually try it. I remember, like, doing it, we were testing a demo of one of our, our early products. And, like, we were both sitting at home in lockdown. It was probably pre-lockdown product. Actually. It wasn't like it was 2019 before we went to Norway. Um, and, like, running this sort of immer- virtual world off our, off our phones, um, now computers running off our phones and being able to sit together in an armored car and sort of have a conversation as if we were sitting beside each other in the world. Yeah. Like that's like, it's kind of a cool thing to be able to do. I remember buying the, the Oculus um, beta version, which came out, I think around 2000 and must have been 2012, 2014. And then I bought the second one. And what's really interesting is it's fallen into disuse. And I guess it was because the content wasn't available. And, you know, I remember playing with the lads at home and the early games that came out, they were all kind of basic enough and they were grand, but there was no longevity of it. So it'll be, it'll be kind of very interesting to, to see where does that go. Pat, talk to me about a VR AI and what it is that you actually do. Yeah, I suppose that's also good to, to talk about. It's, I'll just take, pick up on your point about, um, you know, buying the headsets. I think where VR has really started to mature over the last couple of years is it's found its niche in terms of it being a B2B technology first. So we talk about technological innovation quite often, but I think there's also been a need for business model innovation for this industry to mature. So in other words, how do people buy VR? How do the people who make VR commercialize it? And I think what you're starting to see is, it's starting to commercialize in a B2B um, market rather than in a B2C that you would have bought it. So um, it means that companies, like the companies we work with, they understand the need to provide better, more intuitive, more immersive, more data-driven training for their personnel and to do it at scale. And yeah. that's what VR is allowing them to do. Just on that then, and, and you were mentioning there, I think it was Niall mentioned around kind of the airline uh, industry as an example and the cost of bringing a pilot back to a sim uh, for maybe a minor software modification when you could just deliver that over a over a VR headset in a base somewhere in Milan as opposed to bringing them back to Dublin is a kind of a very interesting concept and maybe it's that B2B use case that you're talking about. Yeah, like for fear of stealing Niall's terms here, but the best one I've heard from him in a while is this concept of targeted fidelity that they use in air. So in other words, it's the right amount of fidelity for the job that's been done. So for sure, sometimes you need to train in the real world and sometimes you need to have a full motion sim, but other times it's about, well, what's the right level of fidelity? What's the right type of sim to get the job done? So you're building a business around training using using VR, using headsets to train. Uh, do I have that correct? 
Yeah, ultimately, what we're trying to do is democratize simulation training. We think we can bring high-end simulation training that until very recently was only really available to elite roles, like we'll say pilots or surgeons or Formula One drivers. But we think the technology is now mature to allow us to bring that to whoever needs it, wherever they need it, to speak to your point, and whenever they need it. So no longer do you need the real aircraft or the real offshore wind turbine. You can actually train in a VR headset in your house without the need for as many instructors, without the need for that real-world equipment. And, you know, particularly of importance to our customers is without the same exposure to risk. Like imagine, Connor, your first day at work, you're an offshore wind turbine. I go, right, Connor, you're going 100 miles off the north coast of Scotland. You're then going to have to climb a turbine that's slightly higher than the Eiffel Tower. But here's the catch. It's moving five meters left to right in swells of five meters higher than your house. That's your first day at work. How do you prepare someone for that? Genuinely, if that was your job, Connor, to prepare someone, you can see the value of preparing them in a virtual world so that when they get there, they're better at their job, they're safer, and you can con- conduct the, your mission ultimately or your job. You can get it done safer, better, more efficiently. And is the technology sufficiently advanced that I can, you know, you gave a lovely example of the uh, Defence Forces on the Curra and they're actually operating in a terrain, a Syrian terrain, for example, by, by putting on the headset and stuff. Is the technology sufficiently advanced that that's a real world example? And as you've said, climbing up a rig, do I do I feel the sense of I'm shaking from side to side, five metres, blah, blah, blah. Do I really get that real world sense from the headset today? Yeah, like, uh, I, I think probably both of us can answer this because like Pat obviously has the real world experience of doing this job. And like our, our main system at the moment is is basically training for the job that Pat used to do. So, where I kind of get, I don't know, frustrated is probably the wrong word, but it's kind of a version of that around like, well, is it exactly the same as the real world? But like, no, but like, are there, like, does it have enough benefits to justify not being in the real world? So like, again, like I do a lot of work there and like, remember someone saying to me like, well, does it give you the same sense of like sitting in an aircraft with 300 people in the back and then there's an engine on fire? And does it give you that same level of, of feeling of that? But like the only way actually to do that is like, are you going to send up an aircraft with 300 people in the back and turn on the engine and turn the engine off and put it on fire? Like you're not. So like how close to that can you get in a safe way, in an affordable way in order to get the same effect? And so like there's, you know, I think like I remember reading a lot of research around like particularly hands in VR and actually like just seeing like five white sausages representing your fingers gets you like 80% believable or maybe 60% believable over like a fully fidel- high fidelity version of your hand. And so like it's it's what's good enough to achieve the task is, is really what you're trying to do. And that's what Pat was talking about around targeted fidelity, you know, like that it's it's how like what's the least amount you can spend in order to train the person at the highest level is, is where you're trying to get to. And, and your point, it doesn't have to be 100% equivalent to the real world uh, in Pat's example where you're sending a guy up to climb up a rig if you have given him a 60% or a 70% view of what that world is going to look like he's much better prepared than if he didn't get it yeah exactly that so like if the option is like do something that gets you 60% or do nothing well go for the 60% because like you're going to be more prepared then than you would be without having done any training yeah what, what I would say though is like you know if you start using the sims and particularly in the defence context Within a couple of minutes, you forget it's not real. And like I feel like, well, certainly I'll speak, my brain isn't sophisticated enough to know it's not real. So the initial few minutes, you're starting to get used to the controls, and yeah, you, you realize, okay, this is a simulation. But within a few minutes, 
you absolutely believe that it's real because you're immersing it, you're going through your drills the way you would in the real world. You're trying to deal with the complexity of, you know, managing people and the confusion that happens between people. All of that still happens in the virtual world. Uh, and that's what's so exciting about it for me. Perfect. And stick with you, Pat, because I have a question, which is, is probably not on the technology, but maybe it is, or maybe it's, or maybe it's for both of you. But what you're talking about there are, I'm going to call them the hard skills. Uh, how do I climb a rig and how do I attach and how do I get feel the sense of the rig shaking and how do I get acclimatized to that? There's a huge amount of training required for companies in soft skills, things like leadership or resilience or whatnot. Is there a, is there a view that, that VR would play a part, not in the harder, more technical skills, but in the softer skills that are also equally as important? Yeah, like, I mean, I probably answer this in a slightly roundabout way. But what I would say is the harder skills require soft skills. So if you're if you're commanding an armored vehicle and you've got two other people with you and then there's four other vehicles going around the place, there's a lot of soft skills involved there. So in terms of communication, you know, leadership, decision-making. And I think what VR can allow you to do is develop those on, on one hand. But where it gets really exciting for me is not only can VR allow you to develop, but what we're doing specifically is we can actually codify. So we can say, this is what leadership looks like in data. This is what decision-making looks like. So we can ingest about 500,000 data points per minute assimilation. We can then ingest that into our system, apply analytics initially to measure and evaluate objectively what people are doing, so measure their performance. And then what we're now working on is building machine learning algorithms so that we can predict performance. So, like, ultimately, you talk about leadership, but you ask 10 people to define what leadership is to you. I guarantee you that 10 different answers, or at least five who are like, I don't know. Um, what we can do in VR, we can start to codify these things that are kind of fudgy, kind of hard to define, but we all know are really critical. So what you would call soft skills. So I think VR, not only can you use it for that, but for me, it's actually far better than the real world. Because how would you capture that data in the real world? You probably have someone with like a, you know, a, a checklist. Yeah, clipboard and a checklist going, oh, yeah, Connor's doing well there or Connor's not doing well. And then what's happening is that person assessing you is bringing all of their biases to that. Well, Connor went to a good school, so he must be good. Or he's from a good family. Oh, he's a good guy. But what about people from underrepresented backgrounds, from underprivileged backgrounds who are being assessed? Wouldn't it be great if they could put on a headset, do an assessment, and then be told, actually, Based on your profile, you're in the one, top one percent of what's possible here in the world in this in this role. That's why, for me, it's really exciting. So, to answer your question in a very roundabout way, yes is the answer. I think it's super important for soft skills as well as kind of technical skills. That is, I I hadn't got that. I'll confess, Pat, but that is kind of fascinating. That it's not just using the headset to deliver the training, but it's gathering the data in a very structured manner, such that you can not alone say what has happened, but as you start then, you're, you're predicting when Connor gets under pressure in the sim or in the real world, Connor's behaviours are going to do this and we need to kind of educate and train him uh, around that. Yeah, can, can I come in on that, Connor, actually, as well? Because like, that's kind of a core part of what we do. And like, really, our core insight was that, that like, VR is a great way of putting people in these situations, but it's also a great way of capturing data from them. And like, the product we're building is really specifically catered to that. So capturing data from VR, structuring it, and then presenting results back to the the end user and they're not as you say uh, as pat just outlined they're not just results around connor's a good lad and sure he, he seemed to do well there in that training and he participated and sure he was grand and i chatted with him over coffee you're actually saying 
as we stress tested him and we put him through this and we did this and we did that, here's the reactions we got. We saw he did that the last time he's doing it. It's a repetitive pattern and we need to kind of address it. There are some kind of deep insights to any employer, and particularly when you talk about stressful situations like a pilot in a sim or a or a a, a, a soldier in a in a battle situation. They're kind of really interesting data points to be able to pick up. Yeah, they're kind of life and death data points in a lot of cases. And and like you know, I, I won't get into too much detail now because I'm conscious that I could spend the whole podcast talking about a project we're doing with the RAF. But broadly, we're trying to codify something called airmanship. So airmanship is the non-technical skills required to operate the aircraft. And, you know, Pat was saying, you ask 10 people what leadership is, you ask 10 pilots what airmanship is, you'll probably get 20 answers. Um, and so the idea of trying to codify something that's currently very subjective um, is, is really adding benefit to sort of the instruction process. So you can start to see, well, everyone who's gone through the system performs in this way, or people who perform well tend to exhibit the, these behaviours, and then we need to train people to get towards those behaviours. When- so the airmanship is more... Is more is less about the the skills required to fly a plane, but it's all of the other stuff that goes around that. How do you communicate? How do you talk to your co-pilot? How do you talk to base? How do you read your your awareness, your situational awareness? I guess all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, so it's like if you think about driving a car, like it's kind of checking your mirrors, being in the right place on the road, getting from A to B without crashing into another car. Like it's it's those kind of skills as opposed to you know clutch in, change gear, clutch out, accelerate. You know those kind of they're yeah. more technical skills, I guess. You've talked about kind of some use cases there around kind of pilots and the sims. You've talked about the defense forces uh, potentially. Pat, what other, as you think about the, the kind of the commercial roadmap, what other sort of use cases do you see the, you being able to develop for the business? Yeah, like it's something we think about quite a lot. And we, we've kind of come up with a, with a term that we talk about where we, add, we feel that we add the most value, which is people who operate in risky, remote and rare operational environments. So where we have focused initially is on industries that have it, already have a tradition of simulation. So they're already sold in it. Like air are using simulation for the last hundred years, you know, defense and security over the last number of decades. So they get the value of simulation. And what we're doing is we're adding additional value through those data-driven insights that we can give them and also the scalability of the org. What we think is going to happen and the bets we're making is that the fact that this technology is now at a price point that it opens it up to far more industries. And we think that the next industry is going to be the likes of offshore wind. So because of the particularly policy decisions in Europe that's driving the switch to, to green and renewable energy, then what's happening in Ukraine and the attempts to de- develop strategic autonomy in the likes of Europe for, for um, energy, it means there is a surge in the workforce required for offshore wind. So they estimate they need about 500,000 trained technicians in the next four years hmm. just to meet demands. And those technicians have to be trained to what's called the Global Wind Organization Standard. So how are you going to scale up a workforce in, in, in Western economies that already have almost full employment? And we think that the way that we can assist that industry to move to a green economy is by giving them a scalable simulation platform. So that's what we say when we talk about democratizing simulation. We're bringing it from industries that have it, so defense and security, or we're bringing it to industries that need it, so green, offshore, renewable um, energy. What size, ultimately, is this market for you? I mean, when you think about growing a company and you kind of think about sizing it up, you're very much at the early stage of, of, of kind of scaling up your company and... The world is your oyster. What size is what size is, is the market? I mean, how big could this thing get? Better make sure my investors are listening now. So, <laughs> uh, so if you look at this, the, the, 
traditional simulation markets. So that's 100 billion annual TAM, so total addressable market. And then of that, there's about 12 billion that's spent on software. And that's starting to grow rapidly. So we think that is our core market. So it's probably 12 billion in 2018. Probably, it's probably up to like 14 now. It's going to keep growing. So I think there's probably like a 50 to 20 billion euro uh, simulation software market that we can focus on. But that's in traditional industry. So like medic, medical, aerospace, defense, that's not taken into account the whole new industry that are getting involved, such as wind. So we assess that the wind training market will be worth about six and a half billion by the time they've added those 500,000 people over the next four years. So like the market is huge. Um, and one of the challenges for us, in fact, um, what my, myself and Niall spent a lot of time talking about is this can apply to anything. So we, you can literally do anything here. So what is the thing we can do that can have the biggest impact? So we, we've decided that we want to do things that help save lives and they're also aligned with our triple bottom line, which is that we make decisions not just based on profit, but also based on people and planet. So you can see how that really aligns with trying to help the offshore wind industry grow their workforce. Just sticking with the, the offshore wind, and I think you said 500,000 new employees over the next four years. I mean, is there a danger for you that you 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 can't scale up fast enough? And if there's that size of a market, you have all sorts of fellas piling in, all trying to... Now, I know it's still a big market and there's loads there for everyone, but is there a danger that the competition outruns you if you don't, if you don't run faster? There is. Uh, and again, I might tag in Niall here in a minute, but like in terms of this, it's kind of an emergent market. So it's a market that's new. So VR simulation in wind is not a thing. Certainly the data-driven insights within all of this is a brand new market. So when we look at that emergent market, we actually look at most people around us as potential collaborators. So our, like our innovation around the technology is clear, but I think our business model innovation has been equally innovative, which is focusing on a route to market through OEMs. So in other words, the people who make the equipment, be it the turbine or the aircraft or the, the vehicles, our, our approach is, well, let's partner with them to give them new ways of growing their revenues, new ways of serving their customers. And for the customers, it makes it easy because they're already dealing with those OEMs. So now they've got another way to, uh, to access new products. So I suppose, yes, there is a potential that we need to make sure we have the right level of resources in place to take advantage of the opportunity. Um, but equally, like, I don't think this is a, you know, one person wins market. I think this is about, well, how do we collaborate together to get the entire market to where it can actually realize its potential? That's our approach to it overall. And Niall, if I go back to your core proposition, I mean, I presume you're using other people's headsets. You haven't developed your own headset. Correct me if I'm wrong. And your secret sauce is going to come in your ability to deploy appropriate programs to gather the data, to mine the data, predict the data. That's kind of because not anyone, but I could put on a headset and I could kind of maybe write myself an old training program and stuff. But it's not it's your your proposition is so much deeper, I think, is what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and like, yeah, we don't make headsets. We don't make hardware, really. Like we've built some computers in the past for customers, but that's about as far as we go. Um, and, and like even for me, like to sort of pick up on Pat's point there, like it, it's not even necessarily just about the technology. Like it is also about the business model and and sort of you know the, you know as you've identified, like there's lots of people making VR, but really for us it was around well, where is the niche in VR? And, and that for me was around data, but also like 
how do we get that product to the market? And so how do we how do we get these big organizations to to actually engage with us, a small company and and you know actually trust us to deliver their training for them? Like a lot of these big organizations have internal would have internal training departments who are exploring virtual reality as well. And so like we feel like our product, like the data capture can partner with them. But also I guess um you know, you know, the fact that we're we, we spent a lot of time building networks and, and you know talking to these OEMs and developing relationships. And so that's kind of the harder harder part of the business, I guess. Like in, in terms of like if you think about it as a pure tech company, like anyone can build the tech in their bedroom because yeah. like the means of production are there at the moment. But actually what's harder like building the product is only half the business. Like you actually have to get that product to customers and you know get them using it. And, and then, like for me, that's I guess where where we're maybe differentiating ourselves too. Like it's it's not kind of the sexy tech stuff, but it's actually the, the proper grown up business stuff. If that makes sense. Yeah, and also the interesting point you make there around collaboration, and you're not going to do this by yourself. More and more as we as I do this podcast every couple of weeks and I talk to people, it's around finding a bunch of suitable folks, partners, collaborators who'll work with you to grow this. Because for any of us trying to do it out of just by ourselves is kind of difficult. Pat, you mentioned your investors. What's your uh, what's your funding strategy to deliver against this in the in the years ahead? Yeah, I guess if I if I was trying to sound smart, I'd probably say we've taken a diversified approach to funding. But like in reality, I think what we've done is we've taken a scrappy approach to funding. So like what we've done is try to mix and mix funding from investors um, with grant funding from the likes of EI, from DTIF, and uh, a number of UK funds. And then also now looking at uh, low interest loans as well for commercialization. So really what we're trying to do is make sure that we have a mixture of funding that supports us to allow us to take advantage of the market rather than being dictated by the funding and what we're going to do. And I think we've just about hit that nicely. So we're hopefully very close to closing a new investment round at the moment. And that's going to include... um, as I said, uh, an element of kind of VC investment, an element of private equity investment, as well as grant funding and, and, and some debt. Okay. And that, for me, gives us the flexibility that we need to make the decisions we need because, you know, this market is moving really, really fast. And, like, to go back to one of your early questions, like, certainly the bigger companies in this are, are all looking at VR. But from what, from my perspective, it's moving so fast we can barely keep up. There's no way a big 50, 100,000 people organization would be able to keep up. It's just moving too quickly. Right. So I think what we need to do is make sure that our funding strategy allows us to move quicker than our partners, that we're adding value to them. Last question to both of you to, uh, to finish us off. We get lots of startups and scale-ups listening to us, and they're all looking for the kind of the, the magic ingredient to help them scale and grow fast. In a word, what's your piece of advice, Pat? And then to you, Niall, what's your piece of advice to people who are listening to us? They're growing businesses. They're forging new territories. What's the one takeaway? I'll use three. So what we always focus on is sense of mastery. So do something you feel like you're good at or you can get really good at. A sense of purpose. So you're doing something that it's more than just a paycheck because this is bloody hard. So you need to make sure this is making an impact, either for you, your family, or the world, whatever is purpose for for you and then autonomy so that you can like the great thing about setting up a business is you can start to develop your own sense of autonomy to make decisions that to to back yourself to win or lose so mastery purpose and and and, and autonomy are for me the critical elements to growing a business if you don't have that it's going to be hard to, to, to last because it's a really difficult thing to do 
Fantastic. Niall, last word to you. Well, Pat's taken down pink there, so I'm going to go maybe a slightly different direction, which is sustainability would be the word I'd use. And, and I don't mean sustainability in kind of the make sort of hemp shoes out of recycled plastic, but more like it's the back to what Pat was talking about, the triple bottom line, you know, that you don't just measure success based on profit alone, thinking about, you know, how you affect people and how you affect the planet as well. And, and like thinking about longevity in the business, that you can't go at 100% speed all the time. You have to sort of have a sustainable level of growth in order to, to have that longevity to, to sort of grow a business that, that maintains itself. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. That's Pat O'Connor and Niall Campion of Vray. That's it for Startup Nation for this morning. I hope you enjoyed our look at the virtual world, the metaverse and the world of VR training. From Startup Nation, good morning and thank you.